What did they see in me? Louis asked himself. Doesn't she know who I am? Louis knew exactly who he was. A man addicted to heroin for most of his life, whose drive to feed his addiction took over his life entirely. My life became a continual search for the drug. When my mother was dying, he said, I never visited her. I was too busy looking for my next fix. He was a man who spent most of his life in and out prison and when he wasn't in prison he disappeared for a year at a time, just to hide out from anyone who dared to reach out to him. He knew he was worthless. But he wasn't worthless to Lori Gonzalez a suburban housewife and mother of three children, who volunteered at her church's homeless shelter. Lori had been volunteering for a while at the shelter when she was pushed into serving gravy in the food line and came face to face for the first time with the people who came to the shelter. No longer were they anonymous people, she looked into their eyes, she began praying for them and then as she said, I felt touched by the Spirit of God telling me I had to know their names. I realized that these were people who others kept at a distance. Getting to know their names meant a lot. That was the day I found my calling. Serving gravy at a homeless shelter seems like a strange place to hear God's call, let alone be a suburban housewife in Southern California who makes friends with drug addicts and homeless men and women and whose dream ministry is to start a shelter for the homeless with her family and name it, Louis's place in honor of her friend Louis, who heard his own call from God during rehab and who now, struggles a lot and each day is a challenge, but I'm getting stronger every day and life is much better now. Now he has his own apartment and a full-time job. On the weekends, he spends his time doing maintenance at Glenkirk Church where the homeless shelter Lori serves is located. A drug addict and a suburban housewife. Two vastly different people, living vastly different lives, yet God calls both to change lives. But, why? Why would God choose those two people? It is inexplicable. We can't explain it because we don't have ready-made answers to why God chooses to do a lot of things. Maybe the answer is simply, God does inexplicable things. Think about it for a minute. God chooses to call Paul to be Christ's ambassador to the Gentiles. I mean here is a guy who is the Pharisee's Pharisee. He was a zealot for his faith and in his zeal was prompted to work for the purity of the faith by getting rid of these blasphemers speaking about Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as God. Saul, his name before God changed it for him, was absolute in his certainty that he understood whom these people were and what to do about them. He based his life on the assumption that the survival of God's people depended upon making sure that God's welcome was extended only to the limited number of people for which it was meant. He wasn't being a closed-minded jerk preserving his own status. In his eyes, he was acting to ensure the survival of his people, his family in the broadest and noblest sense. So, he went about breathing threats and murder against the disciples. There was not any room for disagreement or even the tolerance of let's agree to disagree. This was the serious business of getting these people who were destroying the faith either to renounce their discipleship or get them out of the synagogues before they brought everything to an end. He was on his way to Damascus with a letter of authority from the temple high priest to arrest anyone suspected of being a follower of the way a follower of Christ. His plan as he rode the Damascus road that day was to hurry to Damascus to find these people, arrest them then bring them back in chains to Jerusalem for a quick, short trial before punishing them. Saul was certain about what he was doing and why he was doing it. Saul was dead, certain he was right. Now, if you've ever tried to persuade someone of Saul's temperament to change his or her mind, you know it's a challenging thing to do. Maybe, that's why the only way God could get Saul's attention was with a blinding flash of light in the middle of the day in the middle of the road to Damascus. It was a light so blinding, Saul was unable to see during and after the encounter with Christ, who asked Saul the million-dollar question, why are you persecuting me? Now suddenly, the central question for his life was not about who is worthy enough to join the people of God, 
but how quickly all people can be gathered at the table to break bread with Jesus in a foretaste of the feast that will never end. Suddenly he's no longer the Saul the Pharisee, but Paul the blind man lying in a bed waiting for the blindness somehow to be lifted off his eyes, so he can really see what is truly real. But Paul isn't the only one whom God inexplicably chose to call. Peter was probably the last person anyone in his village would have thought would be put in charge of anything. He was a fisherman, not a high-status job in the first century, and he was known to be somewhat of a speak-first-think-later sort of guy, who was just as likely to be wrong as he was to be right and even if he was right, he might not know it or even know why he was right. The central question in Peter's life was, will there be enough fish today for us to eat? Each day he set out to answer that question and the answer was always, uh sure we have enough fish to eat today. Sometimes it was, no, we don't. Then, Jesus comes along after his resurrection and Peter and the boys have so many fish, the boat is about to sink. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And suddenly the central question for Peter's life is, can I gather the fullness of the flock I am called to feed with the unlimited blessings God has for every person in the world? Paul and Peter, Louis and Lori are not the only ones God has inexplicably called. John Wesley was a proper little Oxford Don, a priest, a devout Christian who had devoted his life to study and proclamation of the gospel. But he had no fire. After a disastrous stint as missionary in Georgia, he went, in his words, unwillingly to a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London. There, while someone was reading Luther's dull commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. His soul struck fire and the Wesleyan revival began. It was, for Wesley, just like Saul on the Damascus Road. Then, there is writer and Braden, who grew up in the Old South, in a privileged family, in the 1930s. As a college student, she had dinner one night with an African-American woman. There, at the table, sharing a meal together, she was born again. In words worthy of Paul she later wrote, it was a tremendous revelation, the turning point of my life. All the cramping walls of a lifetime seemed to have come tumbling down in that moment. Some heavy shackles seemed to have fallen from my feet. For the first time in my 19 years on this earth, I had room to stretch my arms and legs and lift my head high toward the sky. Here for a moment, I glimpsed a vision of the world as it should be, where people are people, and spirits have room to grow. I never got over it. The wall between, pages 27 to 28. One of my professors at Columbia was Barbara Brown Taylor, who told us of the time she was on a seminary admissions committee. They turned this student down, a student who obviously had few academic qualifications for theological study. But he wrote to them from his jail cell to tell them that the parole board would let him out if they let him in. They invited him to plead his case before them. Barbara described how this big guy came in and told them that, as a young teenager, he had held up a convenience store. All he remembered was brandishing this unloaded gun at the clerk, an off-duty policeman spotted him, shots rang out. Then, before the oak table of the seminary admissions committee, he pulls up his shirt to show them where the policeman's bullet got him in the gut, went out the other side. That was my Damascus road, my burning bush, he exclaimed. Of course, said Barbara, we didn't want to admit him into seminary. But what could we do? We knew Acts 9. If God could make an apostle out of Saul the murderer, what might God do with a guy with an unloaded gun? It was just the sort of inexplicable thing that a God who would raise Jesus from the dead just might do. But the truly inexplicable call God is making is happening to someone here this morning. Someone sitting next to you has been hearing the small, still voice speaking quietly to her or him. Someone has heard God's inexplicable call through the voice of husband or wife or, even, you. 
Someone at this moment is feeling that strange warming sensation Wesley described, or just the feeling of the Spirit of God moving through them, pushing, and prodding and grabbing hold of them and showing them the world as it should be and will be through the grace of God. Right here and right now, the God who raised Jesus from the dead is doing what God does, making the inexplicable call that will change the central question of somebody's life, who might just be asking the same question everybody, including me, asks God when we hear that call, God, don't you know who I am?